0: that I could hope the church would hear, could hear, today's that, that message. And um, it's not going to be super unique to what you all have heard before, but hopefully it's clarifying one more time confirming one more time, convicting one more time, and most specifically um, destroying one more time of what I believe is one of the primary deceptions plaguing the body of Christ right now. So um, it brings me, as always, great joy to expose such a huge lie that the enemy has been so successful in sowing into the church. And my hope is that in particular for our next generation in this room, uh, you kids will never ever fall victim to this lie and will never have to question what the word is very clear on regarding God's commandments regarding God's expectations, regarding the invitation and opportunity we have to be his and to walk in his ways. So um, I thought it'd be fitting to start this morning by reading one of the paragraphs, I guess, from Psalm 119. This is one of my favorite ones, so I'm just going to read this one myself right after I pray. Father God, we are gathered to bear witness together that you are the one true living God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, maker of heaven and earth. There is none equal to you. There is none besides you. There is none but you you are indeed the one true living God. We are grateful that you have revealed yourself to us by your invitation and by your decision, we are all here. By your sovereignty, we are gathered today. And we are grateful for it. I am grateful for it. I am grateful for the work of your spirit in each of these saints. Grateful to be sheep of your pasture. Grateful for the word that you've given us. Grateful for your spirit being inside of us that even allows us to receive from you. And we pray today that you would once again unlock your word to us. That you would open our eyes to it, that you would sanctify us by it, that your perfect will would be done for everyone in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in Psalm 119, and I'm going to read 33 through 40. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart towards your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Establish your word in your servant's heart who is devoted to fearing you. Turn away my reproach, which is dread, for your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. Love Psalm 119. that passion for God's ways, that desire for God's truth, that gratitude for God's commandments, it's sadly lacking in the church today. It's lacking in, in much of the, of the church today. And one of the things that I was kind of reminded of this morning, and this is really awesome when you think about it, that what God wants and what is the very best for us are one and the same thing. That's kind of a simple statement to make, but if you think about it, that's actually really an incredible truth to grasp, that what the God of the Bible wants and what's best for you and I are one and the same. And in the world in which we find ourselves, the state of the country that we find ourselves in, the past year that we've just experienced, uh, as we talked about last week, what we're Well, what you are absolutely gonna start seeing right now, now that Christmas is over in particular, through the end of the year is you're gonna see the the theme switch to what's gonna make things better in 2021. Mark my words. You'll start seeing it on social media. You'll start hearing about it in the workplace. Everything's going to become about this hope that some things are going to change, that somehow, some way, 2020, 2021 is going to be better. And, you know, how people pursue that, obviously it's going to be a variety of speculations, but what... One of the things that the Lord is impressing upon us all, hopefully, is that we can have absolute assurance of what will make next year better. And that is because what the God of the Bible wants for us is what's best for us, because those two things are one and the same, all we really have to do is press into the answer to this question what does God want? And what God wants in particular in each of us and for each of us is He wants to be the center of every part of our life. And to the extent that you and I embrace that reality, trust that reality, and go after God being the center of our life. Um, we can be absolutely guaranteed that life next year um, will not be worse and i and I use that wording carefully, and I actually um, I want to be very careful not to promise anything unbiblical or or align with, um, you know, the promised nonsense that our best life now is available to us because that's what God is offering. Um, I don't want to promise that. I don't want to promise that. If we move God and chase after God and increase in him being the center of our life, that our life is going to get better. Better is not the right word. That's what I'm getting at. Are there blessings that come with God being the center of our life? Absolutely. Are those blessings promised? Absolutely. Is there promised blessings For obedience and protection with obedience and favor with obedience 100%. And if you ever doubt that, just remember the Exodus story that we looked at last week. Remember when God chose that group of slaves and revealed himself to them and called them to himself. He said over and over and over that he's doing that specifically to show a distinction between his people and the rest of the world. You guys remember that? He says it like nine times. He says of the flies, I'm going to show you, he's saying to the Egyptians, I'm going to show you that I make a difference between my people and your people. All right, those are God's words. God says the same thing about the livestock. I'm going to show that I make a difference in the livestock of my people and your people, he says that when the whole world goes dark, guess what? In his people's homes, the word says the light was still shining. So, so make no mistake about it. Um, I'm not promising you, and the Bible doesn't promise you your best life now, right? And the Bible doesn't promise you health and wealth and fame and fortune. And I'm not aligning with any of that nonsense. But what I am being shown clearly and hopefully communicating clearly that to the people that God calls to himself and that he makes his own, it is his desire. And in fact, it is part central to the purpose of God calling a group of people unto himself to show a difference in those people's lives. Does that make sense? So as I said last week, that difference is up to him. And that's why to use the word better, we put too much of our own humanness on that word. And that's why I don't even want to name that, that increase or that blessing. I'm just going to say God promises to make a difference. God promises to show a distinction between his own and the rest of the world. And so as we get ready to turn uh, the page of the calendar, and we naturally are going to get kind of swept up into this theme of what are we going to do to make next year better? What's our resolutions going to look like? What's, what changes are going to we going to make heading into 2021? Uh, let's just be super clear about what the Lord is speaking to us, that he wants to be the center of our lives. That he wants to be the center of every aspect of our lives. And that the degree to which we align with that purpose, that he has clearly communicated. Remember when we talked about one of the ways you can recognize what God wants is by looking at what he commands of us, especially as it relates to him. We talked about the first four commandments. God wants to be God and God wants to be first. God wants to be our own he does not want to be shared with any other idols, in particular an idol of our own making in which we change him. He does not want to be taken lightly. He does not want his name to be carried with a lack of reverence or a lack of seriousness. And he wants a day to be set apart unto himself. Those are just four that very communi- that very clearly communicate how much God wants to be the center of our lives. And those four are representations of every one of God's commandments, every one of his statutes, every one of his judgments, his precepts and his ordinances that all ultimately do one thing with the God of the Bible, which is involve him in every aspect of our life. And he just wants more. He wants more of that for each of us. And he promises as we do our part in that, as we say yes to the invitation and walk out our pieces of the covenant, God promises to make a distinction in our life. He promises to show us in front of the world to be different, to be distinct, to be set apart. And that's a good thing. Don't hear, don't hear me wrong. It's a good thing. And, and the blessings that come with it are good blessings. Clear? So... um, Let me make sure I hit everything. All right, so let's start exposing a Yes, I enjoy doing this very much. Um, As we talked about last week, um, in the Old Covenant, what is incredibly clear regarding what God wants is how central his commandments are um, to the accomplishment of that purpose. All right, so I I listed out most of what we talked about last week. God wants to reveal himself to a group of people. He wants to call that group of people to himself. If we ever want to kind of remember in the natural what that looks like, just remember the Exodus story. He took a very small group and chose to reveal himself to them. He called that group to himself. In this case, they had to be called out of the slavery and bondage in Egypt, right? As God freed that group of people and took them into the wilderness, he very clearly communicated that he wanted to be the center of everything for them, that that was the purpose for which they were being called out, to to put on display this God and his goodness and his sovereignty and the difference that he makes in people's lives by specifically walking in obedience to his commandments. So he gives the, the law, these, these instructions for how to be human differently than anyone else was being human, more perfectly than any other people group was being human. Why is that possible? Because this is coming from the creator God. And that's what this is all about. God wanting to be seen, God wanting to be known, God wanting to be given his rightful glory. So in order to be seen, God said, I'm going to call a group of people and I'm going to teach them how to be holy like I am holy. And to be holy, they're going to have to keep my commandments. They're going to have to walk in my ways. They're going to have to teach my ways to the next generation. And in doing though, they are going to be participating with me in my purposes for all the earth. So we have this crystal clear instruction throughout the Old Testament of a a group of people being called And instructed on how to be holy. Remember in Exodus 19, he calls him up on the mountain. He says, The whole earth is mine, but I'm calling you to myself to be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a nation of priests and kings, holy unto me. So, in order to be holy, you got to know the way of holiness. You got to walk in the way of holiness. You got to teach the way of holiness generationally down through the kids. And in doing so, you are going to be. The city on the hill. You are going to be the light in the darkness. You are going to be um, the proof that I am who I say I am. That I am real. That I am good. That I am sovereign. That I am awesome. That my ways are perfect. Because the distinction in your life, the difference I'm going to make in your life, is going to stand apart. And and the you know the the culminating point is God wants to be the center of everything. God wants to be for that group that is calling to himself, God wants to be their God and he wants them to be his people. So so the the call to pursue holiness, the call to obey the commandments, the call to walk in his ways, the call to worship as he prescribed, the call to teach these to the kids, so it's passed on. The 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 call essentially to make this God the center of everything on display, in front of the whole world, that was the first covenant. That was the the revelation of the heart of God and the invitation of God through the the parameters of the first covenant. And we know that that first covenant ended how? Poorly. (laughs) Right? It ended in complete failure. It ended in train wreck. It ended in disaster. And um, what we need to recognize was the problem was the first covenant was not what God wanted. The problem was the first covenant was fallen man. was sinful man born with a sin nature that literally could not align with what God was inviting, could not align with what God was asking. And so um, fast forward to the New Testament and what we know clearly is that Paul was given revelation from God about why that is why it was such a train wreck and what Paul taught and what we can read in the new Testament letters is, is he taught very clearly again, the problem was not with God and the problem was not with the first covenant. The problem was with the flesh. And he says, um, a couple of things that we mentioned last week, he said that fallen man is simply at war with God or the carnal man, is the enemy of God. He says that the carnal man cannot, not won't, but cannot submit to the laws of God. He says that, that the flesh and the spirit are always opposed to one another. And he goes on to say that, that literally anything that is of the spirit is only foolishness to the natural man or to that sin nature, cannot understand it, cannot believe it, cannot trust it, cannot um, ever submit to it so those are those are um, truths that Paul gives clarity to as to the problem with this Old Testament story and and the understanding this uh, a point that i made last week is very um remember that when when the bible says that um that the natural man that anything of the spirit is foolishness to the natural man what did we what did we list last week are of this spirit in particular god is spirit the law is spiritual and jesus's words are spiritual our spirit rather so if, so if the this Things of the spirit are foolishness to the natural man, and God is spirit, and the law is spirit, and Jesus' words are spirit. You see how the, the first covenant had to end with a, with a train wreck. You see how it was impossible for the natural man, the, the carnal men in the Old Testament, to walk out this invitation. Is that, is that clear to everyone? We all see that? So, here is where the, um, the deception can begin to be exposed. One of the first things that we have to understand, um, this is a good way to think about it. Um, behavior modification is not what God was after And it will never be the answer to God getting what he wants. All right, listen to me real carefully. Behavior modification is never going to be the answer. And it's never going to be the solution to God getting what God wants. What does God want? He wants to be the center of everything. He wants us to walk in his ways, to be set apart unto him, to show that the whole world can see that he makes a difference. But behavior modification is not how that is walked out. And, and, um, and think about behavior modification this way. It's taking our fallen, sinful flesh and, and dusting it up just a little bit and forcing it to obey God despite its desire to not do that. That makes sense? That's what behavior modification is. Think about this real carefully. Behavior modification is taking sinful man, cleaning him up a little bit on the outside, forcing him to conform a little bit to God's way so that he's a little bit better than he was before, even though he's going to hate it all the way. Because the flesh is always going to hate it. right? That's what Paul teaches. The flesh cannot submit to the ways of God. Not won't, can't. The flesh cannot love God. It's always only going to hate Him. The flesh cannot worship God. It can only worship self. So to try and take that flesh, and 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 oppress it or or um, crush it into submission—that's never what God wanted. And if that is what God wanted, God could have at any point taken fallen sinful man and basically crushed him into submission. If he just desired for man to suffer through obeying him, no matter what, he could have easily done that in the Old Covenant. But that is not what God desires. God does not desire to subdue the flesh and force it to obey even when it hates. Everyone understand that? I pray the spirit gives us understanding on what I'm saying. It's super important that we understand what what God is not after. He is not after cleaning up the flesh. He is not after being a little better. He is not after behavior modification. He is not after forcing people to go to church, right? He is not after forcing people to worship. And the reason I'm passionate about it, saints, is because I see a ton of this. How do I know? Because the church is changing so much to cater to the natural man. The church is so full of false converts that still cannot love God, cannot submit to his ways, right? They're still ultimately at war with God, so the whole model has to change. The word can't be taught because it's only going to be confusing. Worship can't be in spirit and in truth because people don't want that. You can't talk about sin. You can't talk about repentance. You can't talk about holiness because those things are totally offensive to the flesh. All you can do is increase the carnality because that's what ultimately they're ministering to is the natural man who doesn't even want to be there. And you can see it over the last month crystal clearly. That problem and I I don't even know what to call it, the the counterfeit religion that basically is just taking the natural man and seeking behavior modification, that is the epitome of the lukewarm church. A clear offense to God because they are doing things that communicate that they belong to him and are about him and are for him. But all along, if if they're not born again, they can't walk in his ways, can't keep his commandments, can't worship him, can't pray to him, can't understand his word, cannot hear from the spirit, will not align with his ways, will not have him at the center of of their life, and will not participate in his business. So it's a huge, huge deal that we are all very, very crystal clear that God is not interested in forcing you to obey him. God is not interested in subduing the flesh. And God did not make a mistake in the first covenant. God did not goof up in the first covenant. So here's the first thing that we need to be reminded of as we think about the first covenant and how big of a train wreck it ended in. First of all, we got to know why. The why is because God's not interested in behavior modification. The reason we can know is that, it, that the reason that we can know it was not a goof is because, uh, and I'm going to say something that, again, you've got to hear this in the Spirit. And in the, in the Holy Spirit has got to give us ears to hear this very simple but super important truth. You guys ready for it? Are you listening, Lace? This is not about us. Did you hear that, Steve? It ain't about us. You hear that, Cannon? You're not the hero. What will cause us to stop asking the wrong questions about the first covenant, the wrong questions being like, why did God set us up to fail? Or why did God make such a big mistake? Or why did God give such a terrible law? All those questions have mankind and man, period, being placed at the center of it. And here's what you need to hear, saints it ain't about us. God wants to be glorified. And because God wants to be glorified, God desired for the Son to be glorified. Because when the Son was glorified, the Father would be glorified. And so the entire story, the entire first covenant, every aspect of it that absolutely clearly communicated what God's heart is, what God's plans are, what God's desires are, the perfection of his ways and every way in which he wants to be the center of it all, that was not a mistake. It was not a goof up and it was not to set mankind up to fail. It was all done in order to point to someone. And until you get that, until we grasp that truth, saints, we'll keep asking the wrong questions. Questions about ourselves. This isn't about us. It's all about God, his goodness, his sovereignty, his glory for his namesake. And for, and for Jesus to receive the maximum attention and the maximum visibility and the maximum glory, that whole first covenant had to, had to end in failure because he's the hero and he's the champion and he's the savior and he's the Messiah And he's the point and he's the purpose and he's the one to which all of this has been pointing all along. Does that make sense? There had to be a massive failure because it ain't about us. We couldn't clearly see that this is all about Jesus without the first covenant. Are we all clear about that? So Revelation 5, verses 1 through 10 has always been one of my favorite passages. Let's read that one quick out loud. Because as we think about the, full her- the, the, the whole first half of history pointing towards one, one single moment, Revelation 5 communicates that moment. The whole first half of history all given to point to Christ, all given to, to, so that the world could best behold what was being accomplished on that cross. And listen to, listen to the way in which it's described. I just love this passage so much. Would someone mind reading this for us? Revelation chapter 5 verses 1 through 10.
1: No one was found to open
0: and read the not How do we know that no one was found worthy to open that scroll? The whole old covenant teaches that. That is literally the message of the whole Old Testament. No human being was found worthy Everyone hear that? We could, we could read those words, guys, and have some understanding. But because of the old covenant, because of Israel, because of the Exodus story, because of the whole first half of history, we can fully know that man after man after man after man after man after man after man, after man, after man who tried to love God, who tried to walk in his ways, who tried to embrace the invitation, couldn't. God didn't screw that up. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a goof. It wasn't a setup on man to fail. It was all done so that we could see who the real champion is. Beautiful. Absolutely, breathtakingly beautiful, perfect scenario to point to the real champion. Go ahead, Andrew. Andrew.
1: Beautiful. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals, where you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and town and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign
0: on the earth. That sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? Read read that chapter uh, verse ten again, Andrew. What should that help remind us of? God doesn't change. What God wants doesn't change. What God requires doesn't change. God's plan doesn't change. His purposes don't change. God wants what God wants. And God's going to get what God wants. And so... It's at this point in the teaching where Satan has had a field day. So, um, so, so the little bit of backstory is super important that we hang on to this. That the old covenant wasn't a goof, that the old covenant wasn't wasn't a mistake, that the old covenant was perfect, and perfectly played out to point out the real hero of this story. But what often gets taught in this point is focused on the cross and what Christ accomplished on the cross and and it takes what Christ accomplished on the cross and twists it to teach something that he never intended to do. Okay, we can recognize that the cross is a central part in the, in the narrative of the scriptures. It's a turning point in the narrative of the scriptures we We would most people even in the church would recognize that it was the it was the point by which the old covenant was brought to an end or fulfilled and the second covenant established okay, but what does that ultimately mean what does that mean for us? What does that mean for god's plan? what does that mean for god's intentions and desires right this is where the 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 church has uh, been deceived and 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 the the place where light needs to be shown once and for all for every one of us so Go to, go with me to um, Revelation twelve, verse seventeen. Let me make this point real quick. Has Satan attempted to stop Jesus from accomplishing his contribution to God's will? Has Satan done that? When? Has Satan attempted to stop Jesus from doing what Jesus came to do? When did he do that? In the desert, he, he did? When else? When he was born? Yep. It's always been Satan's plan to stop God's plan. Right, So there were multiple attempts on Jesus' life. There were multiple times when Satan tried to stop Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 from happening. The time in which God's true champion would come and take the scroll, the largest scroll of the one who sat on the throne, break the seven seals and begin the playing out of God's perfect manifold wisdom. Satan tried to stop that multiple times. He never was successful. But what the word teaches us is that after he was unsuccessful in stopping Jesus, he turned his attention on somebody else, some other people. And what does the word say? Someone got it? Revelation 12, 17. Nope. Thank
1: you. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who would keep the commandments of God and have
0: the testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay, so we know this is after the cross. Why? They're holding to the testimony. If they have the testimony of Jesus Christ, it means they're what? Born again. So, because Satan was unsuccessful in stopping Jesus from going to the cross, now he's turning his attention on what? To those who have received that invitation, who God has revealed himself to, who has called him to himself, and who are now doing what? Attempting to make God be the center of their lives. Who is that, by the way? Hopefully, everyone in this room. Right? Because Satan was unable to stop Jesus from going to the cross, now he has his attention set on a, on a very specific group of people, those who are born again and attempting to keep God's commandments. Okay, so here's, here's the lie. Here's the beginning of the lie being exposed. One of the ways in which Satan is coming against you and I, or making war specifically against you and I, is by attacking the commandments of God. Okay, this, is, this is the part that I wish I could share with every church in America and every Christian in America. Mm-hmm. Satan is at war with us by attacking God's commandments. Has he attacked God's commandments before? Yes. Going back to what? The, the very literal first time God told us to do anything. Mm-hmm. Right. What was the first truth? If you eat from that tree, surely you will die. What were the first words out of Satan's mouth? Surely you will not die, right? Is this a new thing for Satan to do? Absolutely not. He has constantly, constantly throughout the story come against God's ways, come against God's words, come against God's commandments. Okay, so that is not new. So what has made this attack so successful? What has made his strategy so successful is that he has taken the work of Jesus on the cross. Listen to me now. And he has taken the change or the changes that Jesus' work on the cross brought about, and he has included into them the commandments are now done away with. Does that make sense? So he recognized that he couldn't stop Jesus from going to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus did something very significant. And could it be seen as confusing? Perhaps. So Satan has used the body of Christ's lack of understanding of what God wants, lack of clarity on the heart of God and what God wants. The, the possibility of the confusing nature of Jesus going to the cross and, and fulfilling the first covenant and establishing the second commandment, there was, just a, there was an opportunity there. If I had to sort of speculate how Satan looked at it, there was an opportunity there, a window there that I can I can throw into this what actually is the most significant victory, the most important single victory that God had ever carried out. The the greatest defeat of enemy of the enemy, period, and Satan's looking at it thinking, how can I how can I come against this? That I couldn't stop. I couldn't prevent. It's happened. How can I spin it? How can I, how can I somehow introduce a deception into what's been accomplished to make war against those who are going to be born again? Well, I'm going to use this, this happening on the cross. I'm going to use this work on the cross and throw into it a deception. Well, now my, God's commandments don't matter anymore. brilliant and so effective. He literally used Jesus' sacrifice as our sin offering. Christ's willingness to be and worthiness to be the true unblemished lamb and to give his life Satan has used that moment and bewitched the church so badly that what's being taught now is that Jesus needed to do that in order to do away with the terrible law. Jesus needed to do that in order to change God. Because what God wanted was not good. What God wanted was not right. What God called truth needed to be abolished. You realize like the... the. Um, some of the application of this teaching almost sort of pits Jesus of the New Testament against God of the Old Testament. Like you got the big mean God of the Old Testament and you got the nice new Jesus of the new. You got the, the wrathful, vengeful, hateful God of the Old Covenant and the graceful Jesus of the new. You realize that it's all God. He's one and the same. He doesn't change. He's never changed. His desires never changed. His ways never changed. His law never changed. His hearts never changed. His plans never changed. Jesus did not go to the, ch- to the cross to change God in any way. Jesus had no desire to change God. Jesus had no need to change God. God doesn't need to be changed. God's heart didn't need to be corrected. His plan didn't need to be corrected. His ways didn't need to be corrected. What an unbelievable deception wrapped around the cross of all things. Okay, so just hear me loud and clear. Kids, this is for you guys. And I pray and hope that the Spirit gives every one of you ears to hear that you will never, ever, ever, ever even, even consider the deception that what Jesus did on the cross was done to get away from God's commandments, to do away with God's commandments, to change God's requirements for being his own. Hear me loud and clear kids Jesus did not come to change what God wants. He didn't come to change what God de- desires. He didn't come to change a single one of God's commandments. He didn't come to change God's laws. He didn't come to change God's ways. He didn't come to call what God change what God calls truth because everything that God is everything that God spoke, everything that God desires, every part of God's intentions are all perfect. He's never made a mistake. He's never given a single law that was wrong. He's never given a single commandment that was to be done away with. And it was only a masterful deception of the enemy in which he used Christ's work on the cross as an opening, a little bit of confusion to slide in this deception. That the problem with the old covenant was God's ways. That the problem with the old covenant was God's laws. That the problem with the old covenant was God's expectations. That the problem with the old covenant is God wanted to be the center of everything. Bless you. It is comical, though, that a deception could be slipped into the church that said Jesus actually went to the cross to change God. Never, ever believe that, saints. God didn't need to be changed. His desires didn't need to be changed. His laws didn't need to be changed. His heart didn't need to be changed. His heart has been fully exposed throughout the entire time. This heart has been fully exposed the entire time. Jesus did not change that heart. And I'm going to make one more. I'm going to make one more. I'm going to show this one more time just so that we're crystal, crystal clear. And then I'm going to quit because I feel like this point just needs to be made today. And then ended ended upon. Let me just show one example. And um, as with everything, the, the saints would be extremely protected Kids, I'll make this point to you guys one more time. You guys will be extremely protected from deceptions like this one that is plaguing so much of the church if you read and know the Word of God. Because the Word of God is perfect and and lacking absolutely nothing to teach us the truth and specifically to protect us from the lies. All right, this is is how we protect ourselves from masterful lies like the one that has plagued the church regarding God's commandments. Let me show you how clear the Bible is. Let me show you how clear the word is to protect us from this deception. All right, so last week we discussed the first covenant. Obviously, it's established in the Torah. Um, it's very clearly, very beautifully communicated for the through the first five books of the Bible, what God's heart is, what God's desi- what God desires. Specifically, that He wants to reveal Himself to a group of people, that He wants to call that group of people to Himself, and that He wants to be their God, and He wants them to be His people. That is done by walking in obedience to all of his commandments, walking in all of his ways in every area of life, teaching those ways to the next generation, participating in his plan and his purposes. It's very clear. Page after page after page after page, story after story after story, commandment after commandment after commandment, it all reveals the same heart, the perfect heart of God, the heart that never changes the heart that Jesus would never, ever, ever, ever think to change or try to change or want to change. It is God's heart. And at the end of Deuteronomy, what we see is, just turn with me real quick. Deuteronomy, let's start in, what's the first one? 27. 27. As we talked about last week, Deuteronomy is sort of the the second giving of the law, the second encouragement. Moses retelling the second generation. And you see in chapter 27, the first thing or one of the things he has them do is write the entire law down on stones. Right. So we're reaching the end of the giving of the first covenant. He's he's just about done. It's just about been fully handed over to them. Write the law down on stone. Gen chapter 28. Very, very clear instructions. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Chapter 29, the covenant is renewed. And we get to chapter 30, which is the the culmination of the giving of the first covenant. It's all been communicated. It's been established and now renewed with the second generation. There's crystal clarity on both sides. There's agreement on both sides, and in verse uh, in chapter 30, he basically says, "Now it's your choice, because I'm inviting you into this covenant, and I'm going to be faithful to do my part, but I need you, Israel, to be faithful to do your part." And he starts off by saying, "If you remember, it's totally possible." right? This commandment is not too far off. It's not too mysterious. It's not in heaven. It's not across the ocean. It's right in front of you. It's at your fingertips. You just have to choose. Choose yes. Choose obedience. Choose to walk in my ways. And then look at verse 19. He says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Therefore choose life, that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life, and the length of your days, that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them. Everyone remember why he calls heaven and earth as witnesses. Okay. There's a a reason why heaven and earth, but why does he have to call witnesses, period? He's establishing something. Right? Guess what? God keeps his laws. Right? In Deuteronomy, I think it's 1915, says... It's upon one or two witnesses that any matter is established. Right? How remarkable. God is keeping his own laws. And in his own law, he says, for a matter to be established, it must be established upon the witness of two or three. So he says, in the very culmination of the first covenant in which all of the expectations have been made known, he says, okay, now I'm going to call heaven and earth as witnesses to everything that's been established. Obedience for leading to blessings, disobedience leading to consequences. His law being the center of his people and him being their God and them being his people. I call heaven and earth As witnesses now what's really amazing is we know exactly when heaven and earth go how do we know that how do we know anything by the bible okay so go with me to revelation chapter 20 Do you guys know that heaven and earth is in place until Revelation chapter 20? In Revelation chapter 20, we can can see the just by the kind of the headings of the paragraphs, we can see where we're at in the story. We're at the thousand-year reign. Okay, so Christ has returned the thousand year reign has come and happened finally satan and his rebellion is crushed at the very end after the thousand year reign and then look at verse 11 then i saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face what happened the earth and heaven, fled away. heaven and earth fled away this is the this is the next the only time in scripture that we read heaven and earth come to an end and it's right before or it's at the time of the great right throne of judgment now what's happening then the judgment of everyone that's ever lived so does it make sense that god would call heaven and earth to be the two witnesses that establish the desires of his heart that, that he would use something that would be in place until the very end of this age. Does that make sense? Is there anything else that God could call as witnesses that would be in place until the end of this age? He's perfect. Every part of God's ways are perfect. So it only makes sense that for God to establish something that's never going to change in this age, that he wants to make sure never changes in this age what he's going to call as witnesses are things that are not going to be gone until the end of this age. Well, guess when heaven and earth flee away? The end of this age. Then look at Revelation 21.1, which is what? The very beginning of the age to come. Now I saw a what? New heaven. new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had fled away. There was no longer need for them. They had accomplished their purpose to be the two witnesses so God could establish a thing that would never be changed. What was he establishing that would never be changed? All of these things. Remember, this was the culmination of the entire first covenant being expressed. Now now think about this with me. Would Jesus have known that at some point Satan was going to use his work on the cross to to inject the deception that the laws of God are done away with because he died for us? Would Jesus have known that? Yep. How would Jesus have known that? Because he's God. Okay, listen to me. Follow my logic. This is really important. Jesus is God, yes? Jesus knows the end from the beginning, yes? Jesus is not surprised by anything, yes? So Jesus would absolutely know, would he not, that at some point Satan was going to take his work on the cross and use it to actually come against God's commandments. Satan was going to try that. And Jesus knew it. Bless you. So if Jesus would know, would absolutely know that at some point, Satan was going to use his work on the cross to come against God's commandments, wouldn't it make sense for Jesus to warn us against that? Or somehow teach us uh, the truth so that we'd never ever fall for that deception? and make it 100% clear, like absolutely crystal clear. Could Jesus have done that? Would Jesus have done that? Probably so. Did Jesus do that? Yes. Where did he do that? Matthew chapter 5. What's that? Matthew chapter 5. Let's read it. Listen to the elements that make this, I believe, Jesus' exact statement or teaching to protect us from the primary lie that Satan has worked into the church. The lie that says because Jesus went to the cross, the commandments of God are now done. The law is done away with. The law is obsolete. The law is Old Testament. The law is Old Covenant. The law is Jewish. The law is no longer necessary. All we got to do is love. All we got to do is say the sinner's prayer. Jesus wanted to protect us, saints, from that lie. He knew at some point Satan would take his work on the cross and the possibly confusing nature of what he actually accomplished, and slip into it, oh yeah, he did away with the law. So if Jesus was wise, and he knew that Satan was going to do that, wouldn't it make sense that he would teach his disciples the truth that would protect them from that lie? Absolutely. And what might that teaching sound like? Well, maybe it would sound like, do not even think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Would that be a good line to start with? Because how confusing is that line? Do not even think. Don't even think that I came to destroy the law. What are the law, by the way? The commandments of God. God. God's statutes, his precepts, his judgments, his ordinances, everything that God has called good and righteous and holy, everything that came from him, central to the invitation to be his people and him be our God, those commandments, the commandments that Satan is coming against and at war with, that he was going to slip into the work of the cross somehow, some way. This is one of the first things Jesus says, by the way. One of the very first things he teaches, this is the beginning of his ministry. Could he be protecting us from one of the most pervasive lies that Satan would ever sneak in? If it was, what might it sound like? Perhaps it would start with, do not even think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. Is if that sentence wasn't clarifying enough, he then says, for assur- assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away. Now, why would he use that reference? Because he's God. And he knows what's been established, and upon what witnesses, it's been established. So it only makes sense that he uses the same language and the same words, because he's the same God with the same heart and same invitation and same intentions as he's always had. You hear me? Don't even think I came to destroy him. I did not come to destroy him. I came to fulfill him. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away... Now we're getting somewhere. He's connecting the dots here. Dots from the very beginning, dots to the very end. You see in that? That's why heaven and earth are so important. It's a dot at the very beginning and it's a dot at the very end. He says, until they pass away, not one jot or not one tittle. Now, why would he go to that length? Because a, a part of the deception some of the adults might recognize this will be, oh, that part was just the Jewish part of the law. Oh, that part was just the, um, oh, that, was the, that, that, that part's not for us. It's just the Ten Commandments that are for us. Oh, it's just nine of the Ten Commandments that are for us. Oh, it's really just two of the Ten Commandments that are for You see what I'm going? How do we know which ones are for us? How do we know where to draw the lines? How do we know which are them and which are us? Jesus puts it all to bed. He puts it all to bed so perfectly and so, you know, so clearly for him to say not one jot or one tittle is more than him saying every single commandment. It's also him saying that, but he's saying more than every commandment. He's saying more than every word of every commandment. He's saying more than every letter of every word of every commandment. He's saying every jot or tittle of every letter, of every word, of every commandment is in place until heaven and earth pass away. Is this an incredibly protective teaching that Jesus is starting off his entire ministry with? Absolutely. What's the protect? What's it protecting us from specifically? Any lie that would come against the commandments of God. What is one of Satan's most successful lies in the church right now? Because of what Jesus did on the cross, the law is done away with. Wow. Explanation point. <laughs> Are you seeing this? Is this not the perfect teaching of someone who might have known what was coming? Who saw of someone who might have been, been desiring to protect his disciples from the deception that he knew was coming. If verses 17 and 18 were not clear enough, you cannot string all three of these together and miss it. Verse 19 says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What's Jesus communicating at the very beginning of his ministry, crystal clearly, to protect us from the most successful lie perhaps the enemy has ever mixed into the church? Tied to the cross. And the work that Christ did on it, the law is in place. The law is for us. The commandments of God are good and holy and righteous. They are truth. They are in place until heaven and earth pass away. And they are central to the heart of God and the desires of God and the desire for God's people. And I hope and pray that we all get it, that we all hear this clearly. Because walking in God's ways, desiring to keep God's ways, being in one accord regarding sanctification and the pursuit of holiness it's very hard to embrace together if we're deceived about this it's very hard to embrace together if we still have confusion or questions about this and i know we all do i know we all have it's incredible how deep this deception goes so deep that most of us have only heard the deception our whole life. So it's only by God's permission and an act of God's spirit that we praise God our eyes have been opened. So regarding the second covenant, Let me read this and then I'm done. The author of Hebrews says this. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. This is chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests to offer such gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make all the things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. That was speaking specifically about the first covenant. Now, uh, verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry insomuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Okay? Here's what I'm going to end with. The first covenant that revealed God's heart was not a... Flaw was not a mistake, and most specifically, is what God wants, reflects God's heart, reflects the invitation, reflects the opportunity. It does all of those things perfectly, so perfectly that no part of God's part of the first covenant needed to be changed. What was the issue with the first covenant? It was not God's heart. Whose heart was it? Man's Man's heart. Listen to me. This is a super important thing. There's a whole bunch of thought going on in the church right now that the first covenant was flawed. That the first covenant was a mistake. That the law is bad. Absolutely no part of this was wrong. Absolutely no part of this required change. This is God's heart beautifully, perfectly reflected. God's desires perfectly communicated. Jesus did not come to change any of this. He was so crystal clear about that. So when he put an end... To the first covenant and established a second covenant. It was not to change God's heart. What was it to change? Man's heart. And how do we know, or how does the word communicate this covenant? He says it's a more excellent ministry. He said it's a better covenant established on better promises. Holy cow. We cannot, saints, we cannot understand the more excellent ministry, the better covenant, or the better promises until we hear what I just got done teaching last week and this week. God is not interested in beating your flesh into submission. God is not interested in forcing a bunch of people who hate him to worship him. The covenant is about a heart change. The covenant is about a nature change. So thorough and so perfect and so all-consuming. Here's what some of the New Testament references refer to what we become in the new covenant. He says we become a new creation. It says we become a new man. And it says we have a new nature. So here's your homework. Saints, anything that you can study, anything that you want to study regarding those three things, I want you to read on. Guess where you're going to find it? Only in the New Testament, primarily in the epistles. I want you to look at everything that is written and taught about new creation, new man, and new nature. And next week, when we gather, we're going to talk about how God gets all of these things because none of this has changed. Guess what? God still wants to reveal himself. God still wants to call people to himself. He still wants to be the center of their lives. That's going to require obedience to commands, walking in all his ways, teaching it to the next generation, participating in, in his plan. All of that's the same. Guess what changes in the new covenant? We do. It's a change so thorough, it's literally described as a new nature. And guess what? It's promised to us. It's given to us as an inheritance. And the Bible is actually somewhat clear on how we walk in it. And I want to study that. So we'll start that next week. All right. Well, Father, we praise you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And we pray that divinely and supernaturally you would give understanding to the things you've shown us today and last week. that we might be firmly rooted in the truth so that we can so easily spot the deceptions. And Lord, our true heart's desire is to walk in our new nature. Our true heart's desire is to walk in our new man, to understand it, to recognize it, to embrace it, To see our new nature grown, to see our new man sanctified, Lord, every promise of the new covenant in every aspect of this more excellent ministry, Lord, we want it. We declare we want it. We ask for it. And pray that by your spirit you would teach us how to embrace it. Give us the right text this week, each of us, as we study and, and pursue you on our own. Give us the right text to read this week. Continue to open our eyes. Continue to unlock the divine mysteries to us.